the Holy Spirit. This is number three in this series, and it is titled, God's Provision for Our Protection. Now, before we read from God's Holy Word, let us pray. O loving Father, we would praise thy name for providing for us the third person of the Godhead to teach, guide, and protect us from all evil during earth's final events. But above all, we praise thee for giving to us the Holy Spirit, which alone can prepare us to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and fit to be given immortality when Christ shall come. And so accept our gratitude for such full salvation. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen. Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians the fifth chapter and verse 17. And here Paul is talking about a struggle, a fight every day in which you and I must take part. Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the others, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Every individual has experienced this battle with sin within his own life and discovered how impossible it is to overcome without the divine help of the Holy Spirit. But thanks be to God, he has always had a plan which will keep his created beings living in full freedom. This was a comprehensive system, not only for you and me, but for the entire universe, to assure peace and spiritual prosperity. And this plan has existed from times eternal, and it is called the Everlasting Covenant. It was a contract between beings and the Godhead. It provides for freedom of choice with individual accountability. It also contained emergency provisions should apostasy arise. God's ultimate plan has always been for a universe filled with free, holy, and happy beings who would render voluntary obedience to God's law of love. God never created any being as a puppet or a robot to each individual was given the supreme gift, the power of choice. Please do not miss the eternal fact 
for neither sin nor righteousness can exist without the freedom of choice. If God had chosen to, cre to create intelligent creatures that would never sin, he would have saved himself much pain and anguish. There would have been no Gethsemane or Calvary. But God did not spare himself. The death of Christ tells us that God saw the possibility of sin, for he chose to make the supreme sacrifice of himself that we might enjoy for ourselves the freedom of choice. God created every individual to be a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and absolutely nothing can force a person to sin if he is controlled fully by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.17 are these words, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Under God's plan, every individual is free to choose whether or not he will host the Holy Spirit as his divine guardian of liberty or to evict the Spirit so that liberty for such a person becomes non-existent. Now, are you following me or am I penetrating too deeply? Let me see if I can read something to clarify this point. In Desire of Ages, page 161, are these words. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraphim to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator, so that it may be a holy temple unto the Lord and an habitation of God through the Spirit." Unquote. Did you see how this is accomplished? It is through the Holy Spirit. Now you may ask, but why did God give to each of us the power to obey or disobey? We'll let the pen of inspiration answer this one. In the Watchman of May 1, 1902, we read, Why did God allow all this fearful iniquity that man might be free? To this there can be but one answer. It was because he knew the worthlessness of all forced obedience and that therefore the freedom to sin was absolutely necessary to the possibility of righteousness." Unquote. So in the great battle in which you and I are involved every day, victory depends on the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And never, never forget this. 
in volume 6, page 396. Only through the Spirit's power will victory be gained, and then notice this word, and held. The human agent must be worked by the Spirit of God. But if we are to really understand the issues and the experience of the coming latter rain, we must know something of the origin of sin and how it shattered the peace of the universe. Remember, God's perfect law of liberty never restricts liberty. Ultimately, all will see that in God's great love, the happiness of every created being depends on the indwelling of the Spirit, which we know to be the Holy Spirit. Now for a few moments, let's consider the creation of Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28:15, we read, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. How did God make Lucifer? Bible Commentary 4, page 1163. God made him good and beautiful. And these words, as near as possible like himself. Now that's quite a mouthful. But look what happened to this creature. In Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, we read, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now God has revealed through inspiration how Lucifer thought to deify himself. In the book Counsels to Parents and Teachers and Students, Page 33 are these words. The law that none liveth to himself, found in Romans 14, 7, Satan was determined to oppose. He desired to live for self. He sought to make himself a center of influence, unquote. In other words, Satan would set himself above God. He would become a dictator. The devil would dispose of the Godhead. Now, how would Satan attempt to do away with God? In Great Controversy, page 589, I read, Satan searched, quote, the secrets of the laboratories of nature, unquote. Why? To develop, quote, 
a science falsely so-called, which you read, of course, in 1 Timothy 6.20. Lucifer used reason and logic to make nature and science testify to falsehood. Are you thinking this through? And he was so successful in his false assumptions that he was able to mislead over one-third of the angelic angels. And these same deceptions are used as the basis for his false teachings on earth today. Now, how can I verify such a statement? Listen carefully. Bible Commentary 4, page 1163. The principles of Satan's working in heaven are the same principles by which he works through human agents in this world. He is continuing this same policy working, originally begun in the heavenly universe." Unquote. Why did Satan claim that free moral choice with individual accountability was nothing but tyranny, that goodness and holiness are not dependent upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As you consider this philosophy of Satan, you will discover his false teachings, such as that desire is the highest law, Again, that the human mind is capable of judging for itself what is right or wrong. And again, that it matters not what you do, just live as you please, for man is accountable only to himself. You will immediately recognize that these are the teachings of spiritualism today. God bore along with Lucifer. He was suffering, extending tender love, so great that it astonished the angels. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 39, God bore along with Lucifer such efforts as infinite love and wisdom only could devise were made to convince him of his error. And then on page 496, again and again, he was often offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, unquote. But then I read in Patriarchs and Prophets 39, he nearly reached the decision to return, but pride forbade him." Unquote. Now it was during this time when Lucifer was misleading the angels, and he himself was in a period of indecision, that God was holding a conference with his son in which they were discussing the possible creation of this earth. Satan was not invited to the conference. It was at this time that he determined 
to never again listen to heaven's entreaties, he decided to forever silence the voice of the Holy Spirit within his heart. In the book, The Story of Redemption, page 18, Satan stood up proudly and urged that he should be equal with God. Then Satan exultingly pointed to his sympathizers, comprising nearly one half of all the angels. He then declared that he was prepared to resist the authority of Christ and to defend his place in heaven by the force of might, strength against strength." Unquote. Thus Satan actually unfitted himself for heaven, for Satan and his angels knew well the character of God, that it was not as he claimed, and he determined to resist even to open war. Here Satan committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. Bible Commentary 4, page 1163. The knowledge which he, as well as the angels who fell with him, had of the character of God made their guilt unpardonable. There was no reserved power, nor were there any greater heights and depths of infinite glory to overpower their jealous doubts." Unquote. When Satan chose to put the Holy Spirit out of his life, he found it impossible to reverse himself Nothing could ever happen to change his mind. Peace and contentment left him forever. Satan had committed the unpardonable sin. And now it was time for God to act. Satan was expulsed from heaven. It was time for God to reveal to the universe the emergency features of the everlasting covenant. He will create this earth and drive Satan and his angels out of heaven into its sphere. He will use this earth to prove to unfallen angels and to the inhabitants of other obedient worlds that God's love and law are just. So, God created this perfect world, and as the crowning act, he created man. Bible Commentary 1, page 1082. I read, a partaker of his life, his nature, and now carefully catch this in Patriarchs and Prophets, Page 53. Like the angels, the dwellers in Eden had been placed upon probation. Unquote. Under the everlasting covenant, 
And what was that? Quote, Obey and live, or disobey and perish. Unquote. Adam and Eve agreed to this covenant. Listen to this. In the story of redemption, page 30, the angels distinctly told Adam and Eve that God would not compel them to obey, that he had not removed from them the power to go contrary to his will, that they were free moral agents, unquote. And Adam and Eve responded, quote, assuring the angels that they should never transgress the express command of God, unquote. And so you see, Adam and Eve agreed to this covenant. Our first parents knew and understood that to obey, to disobey, meant to break the everlasting covenant of God. Now, there is a fact to remember. External circumstances never alter loyalty. Disloyalty can only accompany a change of mind. In the book Mount of Blessings, page 32 and 92, are these words. So long as we do not consent to sin, there is no power, whether human or satanic, that can bring a stain upon the soul. Yielding to temptation begins in permitting the mind to waver." Unquote. And this was the problem. Eve faltered. She opened her mind to doubt. Thus she wavered. And Adam <coughs> He made the same mistake, for he reasoned with the enemy. Thus he gave the devil the advantage. This is how sin became strangely fascinating, even something desirable. Now you may question, how could this be? Listen to something that I feel is amazing. In Bible Commentary 5, page 1081, Satan exercised his power of hypnotism over Adam and Eve, unquote. And in Signs of the Time, Series B, quote, Thus Satan succeeded in depraving man's nature, unquote. Adam also chose to disobey God, for our first parents gave themselves to the control of Satan, not only by an act of thought, but in a change of mind. Both Adam and Eve decided not to listen to the Holy Spirit, and immediately they felt the painful results and began to blame God. But God was prepared for this emergency. Bible Commentary 1, page 1084. As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Don't you like that? Isn't that just like God? The instant 
man accepted the temptations of Satan, Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead, unquote. What a Savior. Praise his name. It was Jesus who opened the door of hope. In early writings, page 149, through the merits of Christ's blood and obedience to the law of God, they could have the favor of God, unquote. Instantly, the emergency provisions of the everlasting covenant went into effect. I'm reading Special Testimony Series B, number 2, page 6. God pledged himself to introduce into the hearts of human beings a new principle. And what is that? A hatred for sin, unquote. This is what we read in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. For the first time, two different forces could be felt within the human heart, each contending for the soul. Man could choose to love righteousness and develop an enmity against evil, with the help of the Holy Spirit, or he could love sin and develop an enmity against righteousness. Now I believe, with this background, that we are ready to fully understand our morning text, found in Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You see, this scripture explains the enmity spoken of in Genesis 3.15. You may say, the small print. Let us read it again by adding the interpretations that we have gleaned from inspiration. I'm reading again Galatians 5, 17. The flesh, that's the human nature sensitive to the promptings of the spirit of disobedience. Again, the flesh lusteth. That means it produces enmity against the spirit. That's God's Holy Spirit which is given to every person to encourage him to do the right. And the Spirit infuses enmity against the flesh. And these are contrary. That means antagonistic, diametrically opposed, the one to the other. Can you see now how this text has grown in our spiritual conceptions. This is how the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. For Christ, our substitute, would die in our place, the just for the unjust, and providing the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to everyone who would ask 
for his guidance and power. Listen. When we accept Christ's death as a covering for our past sins, we must also accept the Holy Spirit to keep us from sinning in the future. In Desire of Ages, page 311, Christ always separates the contrite soul from sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and he has made provision that the Holy Spirit shall be imparted to every repentant soul to keep him from sinning. Unquote. This is why the sealing takes place during the latter rain. The Holy Spirit does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. A final victory over every sin before Jesus comes and assuring us of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by his agent, the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you. Steps to Christ, page 63. We have nothing in ourselves of which to boast. We have no ground for self-exaltation. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and in that wrought by his Spirit working in and through us. Can't you see how this is accomplished through the Holy Spirit? Let me set this record straight. Every angel in heaven, every sinless being living in other worlds, and every one of us who has ever lived on this earth, all are required to have an absolute sinless record before God can grant to us everlasting life. And the truth is, everyone in the universe of God qualifies except fallen man and the devil and his angels. Now, I couldn't care less about the devil and his angels. We all know that they are deserving of hell. But why are we, the saints-to-be, unable of ourselves to qualify for immortality? Because we read in Isaiah 64, 6, we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. Listen to Steps to Christ, page 62. It was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this. And because of his sin, our natures are fallen. And we cannot make ourselves righteous. Now that's just as clear as can be. I continue. Since we are sinful, unholy, we cannot, notice the word, perfectly obey God's law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. So you can see 
we've got a big problem. And Satan knows this fact, for he himself has tempted each of us to sin. So he points to our filthy garments, our defective characters, and presents us before our advocate as being absolutely hopeless. How does he do this? By pointing to our stains of sin as being so defiled that they can never be washed away. By declaring that because of our sins we have forfeited God's protection. And then this rascal boldly claims that he has the right to destroy us as transgressors that we are deserving to die just as he is himself. Then he challenges God by stating these words. And I'm reading from Councils for the Church, page 353. Are these, he says, the people who are to take my place in heaven and the place of the angels who united with me? While they profess to obey the law of God, have they kept its precepts? Have they not been lovers of self more than lovers of God? Have they not placed their own interests above his service? Have they not loved the things of the world? Look at the sins which have marked their lives. Behold, their selfishness, their malice, their hatred toward one another. Then Sister White continues, The people of God have been in many respects very faulty. Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins which he has tempted them to commit, and he presents these in the most exaggerated light, declaring, Will God banish me and my angels from his presence, and yet reward those who have been guilty of the same sins? Thou canst not do this, O Lord, in justice. Thy throne will not stand in righteousness and judgment. Justice demands that sentence be pronounced against them. What a tirade. Now let's read about this in Zephaniah 3, verses 1 to 4. And he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and he stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Praise the Lord. Now let's read how inspiration opens these verses to us in the book Councils for the Church, page 350. In holy vision, the prophet beholds Joshua the high priest, clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel of the Lord, entreating 
the mercy of God in behalf of his people who are in deep affliction. Satan stands at his right hand to resist him, and the high priest cannot defend himself or his people from Satan's accusations. He does not claim that Israel are free from fault. In his filthy garments, symbolizing the sins of the people, which he bears as their representative, he stands before the angel, confessing their guilt, yet pointing to their repentance and humiliation, relying upon the mercy of a sin-pardoning Redeemer, and in faith, claiming the promise of God. What a picture is brought to our mind. I read on. Then the angel, who is Christ himself, the Savior of sinners, puts to silence the accuser of his people, declaring, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? As the intercessions of Joshua is accepted, the command is given, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua the angel declares, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Unquote. And why can Christ do this for you and for me? Steps to Christ, page 62. Because, quote, Christ has made a way of escape for us. He lived on earth amid trials and temptations such as we have to meet. He lived a sinless life. He died for us. And now he offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then Sinful as your life may have been, for his sake, you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned." Unquote. Isn't that amazing? Wonder of wonders! we discover that when our righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags, is removed from us, we are then given the gift of God, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Praise God! We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Is it any wonder, then, that we who are to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, stripped of our filthy righteousness, are judged by God <clears throat> to be worthy to receive eternal life and to live forever in heaven? For God accepts us as though we had never sinned, since we are covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness. Praise God! Salvation is a free gift of God, but beloved,
Here is where the so-called new theology and the historic truths of Adventism widely differ, for both claim to be grounded upon Scripture, but when viewed by the divine guide of the Holy Spirit, it will be clearly seen that the historic truths are of God, and the new theology is based on the lie of Satan. Now listen to me very closely. The new theology takes the gift of God's grace and teaches only a half-truth, for instance, that because we are covered with Christ's righteousness, we should believe that we are saved now. That's a half-truth, and it's a lie. Again, that it is legalistic to be concerned with obedience since Christ obeyed the law for us while he lived on this earth. And that's a lie. Again, that believing that the moment Christ places his robe of righteousness upon us, we are instantly changed from sinners to sinless saints. And that's a lie. Such is what the Bible calls presumption, and Satan has caused many to believe his lies in the new theology now being taught. Now consider the changeless historic truth of God that teaches through the amazing grace of Christ that the Savior will place his own spotless robe of righteousness upon us providing we meet certain conditions. For the gift of God is given only to those meeting his requirements. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit through prayer, study, and obedience, and daily through God's strength strive to overcome sin perfecting characters after the divine pattern. Therefore, we want to be obedient because of our great love for Christ, not because we are trying to work out some way to heaven, but because we wish to conform to his will. It is only by such efforts on our part that God will bestow upon us the precious gift the robe of Christ's righteousness. The new theology ignores these conditions. The historic believer accepts these conditions and with God's help strives to meet God's requirements. This means that as individuals we must possess a title to heaven in the righteousness of Christ applied to our record, and daily live, as Paul said, the just shall live by faith. And we must also develop a fitness for holiness, which can only be produced by the Holy Spirit abiding in us, without which no man shall see the Lord. Let me read this quotation again 
in Steps to Christ, page 63. We have nothing in ourselves of which to boast. We have no ground for self-exaltation. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And in that, wrought by his Spirit, working in and through us." Unquote. Thus the Holy Spirit has been given to us as God's provision for our final protection from Satan's accusations. Praise his holy name. Dear friend, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, awaits our daily invitation and reception. So let us plead for the greatest of all gifts that God has promised to give us, that we may have divine power to overcome. Remember Galatians 5:17. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the others. This is what is meant in the Desire of Ages, page 671. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. Let us pray. O loving Savior, Thou hast promised to send to us the third person of the Godhead. May the Holy Spirit come into our lives today and take full control that we may become worthy to be covered with the robe of thy righteousness. For we ask this in the name, the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Abiding love to me the Savior's given, abiding love for now and evermore. This love is free because a life was given.
Him who 